Hey folks, we have a great show for you today. We're talking with Justin Foster about changing systems, being a heretical leader, and fucking shit up to make it better. Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Hello and welcome to The Thinking Leader. Today, we have a very special guest. Justin Foster is our brand guru. He coaches leaders who are called on to make systemic change. And he's here today to talk to you about how to be an authentic leader, how to lead real change, and how to represent yourself in today's world. So without further ado, Mr. Foster, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bryce. Thank you, Marcus. Uh, always a pleasure to uh, meld our brains. Something always good happens when we talk. So, you have this secret power, and I'm going to share it with with our with our viewers and listeners, which is that I've never met anybody who has such an ability to listen to other people, which is a which is a rare skill, right there, and to take in what they what they say and what they're talking about and to synthesize it and then to spit out like one sentence that sums up everything. So a lot of you who, who, who have followed our work and, and who've uh, listened to, to the show or have been in one of our workshops know that one of the things that we talk about a lot is the fog of BS that companies surround themselves with. And, you know, we talk about how red team thinking is, is designed to cut through that fog of BS. That's from Justin. That, that was the product of, of Justin and I spending a day and a half together, going around San Francisco, drinking espresso, going to museums. Uh, and, uh, and then all of a sudden, Justin, we were sitting at uh, Cafe Trieste, actually, in San Francisco, a very appropriate place, the famous Beat Cafe. And uh, Justin said, you know what you do? He said... All, all these companies create a fog of bullshit around them and you come in and cut through that BS. And it was like, wow, that is exactly what we're trying to do. And I've never thought about it so clearly. So that's Justin's superpower. How do you do that, Justin? Well, thank you for the compliment. And it's, uh, it's, it's something, it's a gift I've always had. Um, and I, it got me in trouble a lot as a kid. Um, adults want <laughs> you to listen to them. They say that adults, teachers and parents and preachers want, they say they want you to listen. What they don't want you to do is to repeat back what you actually mean, uh, what they actually mean. Um, <laughs> and, um, so I've always had a, basically I've always had three curiosities. I'm 51. These curiosities have taken many forms, but the one was this obsession, curiosity, fascination with language and, and, and language as a currency of ideas. And later on in life, I learned with, through neuroscience mm. that oh, language that is, yeah, language is the bridge between the left and the right brain. Um, 
So uh, it's the bridge between the material and the mystical, you know, so it says in the uh, Christian Bible, in the beginning was the word, you know, so the language is the beginning mm. of everything. Um, second obsession or curiosity is what I now would call consciousness, but it was just this general idea that there's something bigger than us out there and whatever you want to call it, you know, I, I, I is it doesn't matter to me what you want to call it. This it's this idea that there's this force or energy out there. And it seems to me that what our human brains do is we tend to overcomplicate what we really want to say. And what I think it's born of, especially with men, it's born of insecurity. It's born of this idea that I have to say something right or people won't like me. And it's very subconscious. So what I do is I tune in to what you really want to say. And I just use my love of language to repeat it back in a way where you're like, yeah, that. Because I never tell anyone what to say. Never. I mean, I've said in the yeah sense that of language. many a time talking to you. <laughs> yeah. Exactly that. Yeah. yeah I, I, think you, I think you just all said it in the background about a minute ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In my, yeah, my third, and this is all related, my third obsession has always been ever since I was a little kid is, and I still have this today and I'll quote Mark Cuban. I just like to fuck shit up. I like to, I like to, I like to deconstruct. <laughs> Deconstruction is interesting to me. Like how something is made is not that interesting. How you deconstruct something is fascinating. And I, I think that part of what draws me to you guys, other than, you know, we have similar values and, you know, we're all in each other's mutual admiration society um, is that we're kind of Marcus's working on hair. Yeah, Marcus's hair and accent. <laughs> Bryce's, Bryce's wit and use of language. Um, but we're, we're all kind of working on the same problem. And um, so, yeah. but, but it circles back to listening. You guys do the same thing. That's why you're good at what you do. It's not, you don't, you're not good at what you do because you have some answer they don't have. You 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 ha you're right, good at no what answers. you do. We don't have right. No answers. You're right. Yeah. But but you think about when you're competing against like the the big consulting companies, they get paid to have answers. You guys get paid to find the right, right questions. If you notice my shelf, right, in, in the consultancy shelves, you'll see what I call the <laughs> cookie cutter models. Yes. And what they do is when you have a problem, they go to their shelf and they take off their cookie cutter and they yeah. bring it to your organization and hopefully that will provide you a solution. It doesn't. Right. Because the cupboard is bare in reality. You have to, exactly as you talked about, Justin, you've got to deconstruct these problems yes. and listen to the people who face right. into those things and help them understand as much as we do and help them use these tools and techniques as you talked about. It, it's like one of my favorite Alan Mulally quotes, you know, at, when he came to, to take over Ford back in 2006 and it, from Boeing and everyone at General Motors and Chrysler was chuckling about, you know, oh, Ford's so desperate they brought in a guy you know, from Boeing to put tail fins back on their cars, you know, and stuff like this. He doesn't know anything about the automobile industry. And uh, I remember I was still a journalist and I, I asked him, I said, you know, we, we had just start to, started to kind of bond and, and I was, had a one-on-one -on -one interview with him a few months after he started. And I said, you know, everyone's laughing at you in this town, in Detroit. And he said, why? And I said, they say you don't know anything about the auto industry. He said, they're right. I don't know anything about the auto industry, but I know it doesn't work. That's all I need you to know. know. <laughs> it's like that's all I need to know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's not exactly. an auto problem. It's a people problem. You know. Right. And I think I think what's related to this though is this 
kind of Western civilization, social conditioning, the, the obsession with formulas. And the only formula that works is the formula for selling formulas. And that's essentially what <laughs> consulting is. Consulting is the selling right. of formulas, um, often by yes. emotionally damaged people, selling to emotionally damaged people. So what it ends up being, consulting really is monetized codependency. It's like rich people having oh, therapy. There it goes. There it goes. That's another. There, there's a Justin gem right there. Monetized codependency. I'm right. I can't write quick enough at the moment. You wow. know, we're gonna have to. We're gonna have to have in the show notes on, on this one. We're gonna have to have a list of Justin gems. Yeah. Consulting is yeah. monetized codependency. My gosh, that is so. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. But it's so true, yeah. and it and it really right. gets to the whole insecurity of leaders who lean on, you know, the big consulting firms, mm -hmm. you know, because you know, no one's going to get mad at you as long as your yeah. slides have a McKinsey stamp on yes. it or whatever. Right. But but it goes back to this social conditioning that you mentioned, doesn't it? It's this Western civilization, and within that civilization we've created, we have this social condition, and it's yes. inherently male as well, as we talked about these insecurities. Yeah. And I think, I think you play off of that. You play off of this like insecure males in power is what was happening in large organizations is people are not nearly as powerful as they think they are. Like the title doesn't mean shit. It really doesn't. Um, right. and, and so, but if your identity is around your sense of power, then what, what you're going to be, what you're going to do is you're going to gravitate towards people that are trying to make you safe within the role of power that you think you have. And again, that's what consultants do. Right. I, I mean, how many times does a consultant come in going, well, the problem is, is you're emotionally damaged, you're spiritually dead, and you need to be doing something else. No, they don't do that. <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't, they don't do that. Said no consultant ever. Right. And, and, and I think this goes to like this macro thing that you guys are working on. I'm working on is, the, the power dynamic has shifted to people that actually give a shit about people and where there's the humility yeah. to the humility to listen and the humility to question. But if you haven't mm -hmm. been taught how to think and that the, way I, and the humility not to have the answer. Exactly. Exactly. Which, again, uh, what is why, you know, look at all the data, women executives, whether they be in professional you know, CEOs or leaders of countries outperform male leaders exponentially now, as far as their overall like performance of an organization. And I think it's, yeah. it, I think that's why it's this flipping what I, what I, the way I refer to it is the, the Kings are in service to the Queens and that's the proper order of things, both spiritually with our heart and my, our mind in service to our heart and not the other way around. It's interesting because when you say that, you make me think about a conversation I had a couple of years ago with a client uh, who worked for a U.S. company that had a lot of operations in, in Vietnam, and he was based in Vietnam. <clears throat> and he was saying, you know, in Vietnam, there's not a single company that has, you know, hiring quotas or has, uh, you know, uh, you know, gender awareness days or things like that. And yet, there's more female executives. He said it was, I don't, you know, I'm just taking his word for this. I don't, I haven't seen actual study. But he said there's more than half the executives that I deal with, he said, are women at Vietnamese companies. 
And, and he said, it's just because they simply promote the best person who's the most yeah, effective right. leader. It's not a, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's problem solved. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Right. Uh, and I love what you were saying there, Justin, about, you know, this power dynamic is shifting to the people who give a shit about people. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. one of the things that I've seen really fall off the cliff in the last sort of 10, maybe more years. And if you think about it, old school we were doing project management, it was always people process platform or people process technology. Mm-hmm. And then as we've gone through this digital transition, that's flipped and it's now focused all on the digital, the tech, then the processes and the sort of people who were really the lead singer of the trio has kind of just disappeared. And it's kind of an afterthought. Mm-hmm. And I really sense now the leaders who are making a difference and the leaders who are standing out head and shoulders above the crowd are those people who focus on their people. You know, yes. Brand, Branson's I, a great advocate of that. You know, you focus on your people, they focus on the customer. They'll focus on your tech yeah. and the outcomes right. that you need. Yeah. And and if you think about it from a well-being perspective, we can learn that the, 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 the dairy farmers know a lot more about productivity than traditional business leaders. Dairy farmers know that if you're kind to the cows, they produce more milk. <laughs> and it's true. They, yeah. they give them massages. They pipe yeah, in music. Right. They have foot washers. And, 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 and so everyone, the, you know, there's this brain kind of bloviating about like productivity and taco Tuesdays and, you know, culture. And it's all this sort of, you know, word salad that doesn't really have any sort of integrated uh, belief system. And what they want is right. What they want to achieve, which is basically only two things in business ultimately is velocity and which is productivity, speed to market, and then uh, productivity. So, if you have velocity and productivity, you're going to get something that will come from that. But velocity and productivity do not work if your people are not liberated. And this is my challenge. When I hear leaders talk about, well, our our our, our biggest asset, or our, our people are our biggest asset. And I'm like, man, they're not assets. They're not assets. They're the only thing that matters. And my further rant on this is the reason that they view them as assets is they are that these leaders are disconnected from their hearts. And if you do not know how mm. to treat yourself, you do not know how to treat others. Um, as, the, as the greatest brander of all time said, you love your neighbor as yourself. I would paraphrase that to love your team member as yourself. So, And it's a two-way street, like you say. And there's, a, right. there's another thing that I would put in there that's also part of the secret sauce, and that's purpose. If right. you look at the organizations that are most successful, the organizations that really change the world, it's because it's because they, they have a team of people that's united by a sense of purpose to do that. And mm-hmm. that purpose can be something altruistic, it could be something even materialistic, but it's a mm-hmm. it's it's a purpose, you know. It's like, you know, if you go back and look at the early days of Atari, you know, mm-hmm. they weren't trying to 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 change the world in, in any sort of altruistic way but there was this this group of people that came around that company in its early days who saw that the potential of of digital entertainment and were like oh there's so much cool shit we could do Mm -hmm. and you know let's stay up late and work 18 hours a day to do it so we can get it to market fast and it wasn't because some boss was you know saying like i expect you to ship this video game in the next you know 
mm-hmm. so 30 days or you're all you know going to get docked to pay no it's because people wanted to and then if you look at a lot of times organizations like that over time atari i think ended up getting bought out by a bigger company and stuff and and then they imposed just the kind of standard you know productivity models on it and that you kind of crush all of that but right that's a, that's a key too isn't it purpose it is because i think it goes back to this is that innovation re- requires liberation you cannot and you look at the mm. this the scope of history and you hear about like um in world war ii what the the allied soldiers later in the war talking about like getting hit by bullets in the chest and then they, or they would just they because they, the 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 slave labor the nazi slave labor had uh shorted the powder in the bullets um, and that was their mm. act of rebellion against the against tyranny, and you know that's a very stark and dark historical example. But is is that you look at where people are free to be themselves? This is why I'm a big fan of anything that involves inclusivity and DEI, and and you know I don't necessarily like woke washing businesses that kind of give lip service to this, but tr- like sincere DEI, sincere uh, ESG initiatives. Um, those type of things, what they're what they're doing is they are liberating people to be themselves. And that's the great like in order to do that, in order to liberate people, they have to learn how to think for themselves, which means they're not following some year long strategic plan like good little robots. I mean, that's where where red team thinking comes in is it's ultimately about not to me, not just teaching people how to cut through the bullshit. It's how to create true liberation and true autonomy by allowing people to think for themselves. But especially if they're organized, like you said, Bryce, around a purpose. It's exponentially different. It's obviously different. And it it also gets to, to, you know, one of my favorite Eisenhower quotes, which is, you know, Plans are worthless, but planning is everything. So mm-hmm. you come up with the strategic plan for a year, but you recognize that you don't know what the world's going to look like a year from now. You don't know what the world's right. going to look like these days, a month from now or a week from yeah. now. And so that plan is just a is just a guideline. And yes. you enable, you empower, I'm going to use the word empower because there's no other better, better word I can think of, even though it's a little bit hackneyed. You empower your team to adjust that plan, to pivot, to turn, to change course, to, to, to zig, to zag, to, you know, yeah. swerve in order to get to the objectives that you're trying to get to, even if it doesn't hew entirely to the plan, because mm-hmm. that's what you have to do to succeed in the world today. And it goes back to what you said earlier, Justin, it's that that empowerment is allowing you the ability to deconstruct the plan. And you can only mm-hmm. do that if you've been engaged in the planning, because you understand the fundamental construct of the intent of that plan and yes. if you see what we often see is well these plans are created and they just get handed off to someone to deliver it even if there was planning of that plan if the executioners of the plan aren't engaged up front in the planning then again you're creating this this almost a wall or a gap between the knowledge of the plan and the execution of that plan in you know in purpose and I in think, the military yeah, they, that, they talk yeah. a lot about commander's intent Absolutely. Right. And, and that's that really what we're trying to bring to business, too, because it's a very powerful concept. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, a, one of the best stories that illustrates the power of commander's intent that, that people might be familiar with is, uh, you know, was told in, in, in the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. It's a true story. It's still taught at West Point. 
Easy Company, which, you know, was a group of paratroopers that dropped into Normandy on D-Day. And they had a plan. Mm -hmm. They had a very specific plan mm -hmm. where they were supposed to land, what they were supposed to do when they land, landed, and what they were supposed to, you know, what their objective was. And it, of course, all went to hell the second mm -hmm. that they, they stepped out of their, their, their uh, planes before they even hit their ripcords because the planes dropped them all in the wrong place. They, you know, everyone was scattered by mm -hmm. anti-aircraft fire. You know, most of them didn't find each other, you know, and stuff like that. But their commander, once he got, you know, all the guys he could find who'd made it, you know, to, to somewhere, you know, close to where they were supposed to be. Rather than saying, right, you know, I'm missing most of my guys. We're not where we're supposed to be. But we're going to have to figure out how to get back on the plan and, and carry out the mission. What he did instead was say, right, what's the real objective here today? We're trying to, mm -hmm. our job is we jumped in before the, 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 the landing craft hit the beaches. Our job is to try to protect the guys on the beaches and to do whatever we can do to, to give them a little bit more space to establish a beachhead in, 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 in occupied Europe. So they looked mm -hmm. around, they, they, they found that, you know, they could see these German 88s, you know, hammering the beaches. And they said, right, that's not our mission, but that's the commander's mm -hmm. intent. That's why we were right. dropped behind right. enemy lines. So let's go. It would really help the guys on the beaches if we could take those guns out. Right. And, and they put together a plan, you know, with the forces they had. And they went and they, and they took out all these German guns and they, they mm -hmm. bought space for mm -hmm. people. That was the commander's intent. Yeah. Commander's intent, I don't remember what their, their original mission was to capture a bridge or something like that, control some mm -hmm. road intersection to keep the Germans mm -hmm. from reinforcing. They said, to help, we can't do that, but we can do mm -hmm. this. And that's the intent. Right. Businesses right. need to think that way too. They do. And this comes to the why, what, and the how, doesn't it? You know, we need to understand the why of these things we're doing it for the purpose. We need to be given the what and the direction, but we need to let these people figure out the how and do that themselves. Mm -hmm. As you said in that example, Bryce, you know, what is it we need to do? Protect our inbound troops. Why are we doing that? To enable, you know, defeat of the enemy. Mm -hmm. How do we do that? Down to you. Yeah. What are the situation you're facing into? What are the assets we have available to us? Where is the enemy? Where's the friendly forces? Wherever it's happening in right. business, that how is something that we need to unleash. And that goes back to that innovation without liberation means you're going to get nothing. Yes. I have a, I have a uh, keynote that I've been giving, um, that's you know heretical and it's called the art of unfinishing and it's the idea is that business because most businesses are still run by men men are are obsessed with finishing you can uh, take that however you'd like um and the, there's this 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 oh mythology this uh, this mythology that there is some sort of end point and it's an illusion yes. um um uh, uh, I mean, uh, um, Van Gogh said, I've never finished a painting. This, this is what inspired the, the term art of unfinishing. He said, I've never finished a painting. I just stopped painting it. And, um, and it's this idea that, there, that fluidity is the norm. The river flows, the banks change. And mm -hmm. we've got it backwards. We've got it backwards. And it goes to, again, to kind of this Western, and I'm not a critic of Western civilization, but I am a critic of binary thinking where art is the better answer and creativity is the better answer. And, and so I think to your great example of, of, and for band of brothers is if there's, it goes back to liberation. If you are free to make decisions in the name of the higher purpose, not the plan, then mm -hmm. you will uh, figure out how to, un, un, how to embrace the unfinishing 
how to embrace acceptance. Um, and then what you're doing is you're serving, like this is why I think companies, organizations that are run by people that are purpose-oriented are so much more effective than people than companies run by people that are process-oriented. Now, they're yes. not in competition with each other, but process will dominate purpose all of the time. It's a kind of business moral relativism, which is our our values are terrible, but our shareholder value is high. And it's that kind of that kind of moral relativism that karma will come oh, and kick you in the ass. Yeah. When I was when I was uh, after I, I quit being a journalist and I was a consultant briefly, just a a, a, a consultant of one. Um, after my first book came out, before I realized that consulting was not what I wanted to be doing, um, one of the things I used to all with every client I would start with is 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 you know what is your why? You know Simon Sinek saying, "What is your why? Why are you doing what you're doing?" And I I learned it from from my mentor Alan because that was the first thing he did when he came to Ford is is you know figure out what is what, why are we even showing up for work every day, and you know so many companies. I mean, it, 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 it just became kind of laughable. You know, the, the CEO or, or the president or whoever I was working with would say to increase shareholder value. <laughs> and, and I'd say, the first time somebody said I was, in, I was, in, I was in, in China, I was in Shanghai, I was meeting with the, the president of a U.S.-based tire company that, that they were U.S.-based, but all their operations were in China. And uh, I said, what is your why? Why are you? What do you? Why are you? Why do you show up for work? You know, not just you, but your entire team. And he said, "Well, it's it's spelled out in our in our you know mission statements to to increase shareholder value." And I said, "Then why not just get in the porn industry or you know cigarettes?" Right. Right. He looked at me like I. He's like, "What?" And I said, "Well, the profit margins there are just a lot higher yeah. than than making automobile tires. And if the only reason you're showing up." is to increase shareholder value, you know, why bother making tires? Yes. And, totally. and he's like, wow. And he's like, you're right. You know, he's like that. And I said, there, there's got to be more to it than that, because otherwise, how are you going to inspire your team? How are you going to get people to do the heavy lifting you want to do mm -hmm. to, to move your company forward? It's got to be about something more than that. And I'm not saying it has to be about, you know, saving baby seals and stuff like that, but it's got to be about, you know, at Ford, what Alan came up with was, you know, Henry Ford's original vision was was democratizing technology. Mm -hmm. And yeah. if you People look about it, that's what Ford's doing right now, still to this day, because Alan put them back on that track. The 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 electric pickup that they've launched is is a lot cheaper than a Tesla, mm -hmm. and it's aimed at the every person in America. And it's about taking something that was a, a technology that was just for the elite and making it available to the masses. Mm -hmm. So. You don't, it doesn't have to be about, about, you know, it's great if it's about, you know, you know, liberating yeah. the soul of humanity, but it, it yeah. has to be about something more yeah. than increasing shareholder value. And I think to that, I get, I get, I get asked this a lot when people are like, you know, so what do you mean by like systemic change? You know, what does that mean when, when, you, when I coach leaders called to create systemic change? Well, it's, there's this basically a bit kind of a simple, like, uh, mark for this and that is are you what are you doing to contribute to humanity if you have a direct line of sight to co contributing to humanity then you're creating system systemic change because ultimately you're either rehumanizing or you're dehumanizing 
And dehumanizing Ooh, is, wow. is, is dehumanizing is forcing people to come into the office when they don't need to. Bigger than that, and this is why I loathe the industry that I've spent years in, of convincing people through marketing, mostly gaslighting them, using their fears and insecurities to convince them to buy shit they don't need, much of which harms them economically or harms the environment. Um, and that to me is dehumanizing to do that. And so if, 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 there, if your company or your organization, like to your point, Bryce, you don't have to be a social entrepreneur or a B Corp or any of that stuff or run a nonprofit. God bless all those people for what they're doing. But if you feel in your heart that the people are more important than anything else, and you are working to liberate people to be themselves, to pursue happiness, to have a sense of well-being in the world, um, then you are creating systemic change. I think of Jessica Alba's company, Honest Co. That's a great example of a company that is heart-based, and she's a great listener, legendary listener. Um, if you, you know, from the people that are around her, and it's all towards rehumanizing. Uh, a very important phase of life for parents. I think, that, I think that there's that. There's Sarah Blakely with Spanx, rehumanizing. Mm -hmm. um, Dove, I like rehumanizing. I love that. Rehumanizing, not dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. This is a great conversation. We'll take a short break and we will continue it when we get back. Hey folks, Bryce here. If you like what you're hearing on today's episode and you want to learn more about red team thinking, you want to do red team thinking, learn how to use red team thinking as a leader to make better decisions and better navigate today's complex world. I've got a perfect opportunity coming up for you. On September 14th, Marcus and I will be leading a live online course, the Red Team Thinking Bootcamp. You can find out all about it on our website, redteamthinking.com or click the link in the show notes. This is our introductory course. It's just $100 and it will give you a solid foundation in what red team thinking is, where it comes from, how it works, the science and psychology behind red team thinking. And most importantly of all, we will arm you with some basic red team thinking tools that you can start using right away to better navigate your complex world. September 14th, online, worldwide. Check it out. I hope to see you there. Justin, it's fascinating how you're talking there about this work-life integration and the balance that we've created very quickly since COVID. You know, pre-COVID, we were trying for many years to get this remote working capability, different organizations, whether we work from home two, three, four, five days a week, and then instantly we made it happen. But what, what we're already starting to see, and you can see it in the news and LinkedIn, is this regression back to how we were trying to behave before COVID. And I, I'm, I'm struggling to understand that. And work Workport, workforce, you know, people in the workplace are struggling to see why are these individuals reverting back to this way well, of thinking? I have the same. I was thinking about that actually just recently. Um, somebody that I admire greatly is her name is Sarah Holly, and she owns a company called Remotely. She's, she's the first recruiting firm that recruits only virtual workers. And she and I were having this co similar conversation about this regression. Is such a good word for it. And I think it ultimately is this, if your power, it, it, it goes back to power dynamic. If your power is an illusion based off of hierarchies inside of a power structure, usually based off of title or tenure, uh, yeah. which are two terrible ways to determine somebody's power. Um, 
if, if that's where you derive your power, then therefore that produces insecurity and insecurity, especially in men, inevitably results in a desire to control. So, you know, it boils down to if you if you ha if you're if you're disassociated from your own kind of true self, you're either going to be a people controller or a people pleaser. Um, so men, gen, gen, yeah. men gen, oh, wow. uh, tend to lean towards people controllers. That's what narcissism is and gaslighting and all that typically is more masculine behavior. And this is what it is. It's like, I, yeah. it, it, I can't, if you're not here, I can't control you. And what's happening then is that businesses, and oh, that what is businesses so true. are forced with is they're basically only able to retain people if they have this, like, you have to come into the office. That, the only people they're retaining is the people that kind of identify their identity comes from their work. Um, they're kind of like uh, incels with better yeah. jobs. Right. In some ways. And so... <laughs> Well, in some cases, people who are doing yeah, creative but, stuff and things that they want to do. No, let's, let's, not, saying, let's not be too, too ungenerous some, uh, yeah. in that case. But what you're not getting yeah, yeah, is yeah. independent thinkers that are autonomous in their behavior because that's right. a threat to control. Yeah. That's a threat to control. That is so true. And, and let me tell you, back in 19... I, I, I can remember this so vividly. Back in 1999, I was asked... To do it, I was working for the Contra Costa Times uh, in the East Bay of, of San Francisco Bay Area. I was a technology reporter there, one of the tech team. And this was back when newspapers had staffs and, uh, you know, had teams rather than, you know, one person, you know, trying to cover everything. And uh, I was assigned to do a story about remote work because some of the tech companies in Silicon Valley had started to set up, you know, satellite offices in like the suburbs and stuff and letting people, you know, work from there one day a week. And I, I talked to a bunch of companies. I talked to uh, PeopleSoft was one, Oracle, different companies like this, you know, and, um, and I wrote a story, front page story. And it was, you know, it, it, the headline was something like the future of work may be at home. Mm -hmm. And it was, and it was, I talked to, to experts at, you know, Stanford and Berkeley and stuff about how, how this was going to unlock this new level of productivity and creativity and all this stuff is totally positive piece and really well read. And my boss said, this is great. It's a wonderful piece. We're getting a lot of good feedback, you know, on this. I said, great. You know, I was, I, I said, you know, I, I was thinking as I was working on this, why don't I work from home, you know, a, a day a week. And she, without even pausing, said, absolutely not. And, 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 and she said, and I said, why? I said, we literally just ran a front page article telling people that this is the future and that they should embrace it. And her response, again, without even pausing was because if I let you do it, I have to let everybody do it. And it became this, you know, whole yeah. thing. Now, here's the thing to, to think about this, because I then bring this up to every boss I have for the rest of my career in, in journalism. Not one of them, not one of them was willing until the very end when I was when when they were more worried about me leaving than they were about controlling me. Not one of my bosses until the very end of my career was willing to even let me work one day a week from home. In a career in which it's regularly the case that you go out into the field and don't come to the office at all, file your story 
you know, from a from an event or a conference or something like that. And I would say to every single one of my editors, you're fine with me going and, you know, spending the day at a Ford factory and filing a story and never seeing me, but I can't work from home one day a week. And, and they'd all be like, no, absolutely not. And to your point, Justin, my one of my bosses who was finally honest enough to say it said, I said, why? And he said, because I can't mm-hmm. yell at you if you're at home. Right. That and he was trouble. not joking. He said, yeah. because I can't yeah. yell at you if you're at home. And that goes yeah. right to your thing about that. Yeah. Uh, and this goes back to this. We talk about a lot and it's a dirty word where I come from in the military, mm-hmm. command and control. And there's a whole point of what mission command and commander's intent was there to do. And I think people misunderstand it. I love command and control. You have to have command and control. But the thing is, they're not welded together. The and is a rubber band. And what you need to do is retain command and understand what that means. But then you need to push Mm -hmm. and release that control. And it goes back to exactly what you said, Justin. If these insecure, usually males who are on a power streak, are unable and incapable of delegating that control, then they they pull the reins tighter and in doing so they actually make the situation far worse than by doing nothing and and we're seeing this so often and i think it's this understanding of i have this title i have this position therefore i must be mm-hmm. seen to be in control seen to be you know keeping and taking control mm-hmm. rather than relinquishing it and but when you relinquish it when you just let go the freedom that your people then mm-hmm. you know gain from that and if they've got clear direction an understanding of purpose, then the right. innovation because it's, it's about to it's kind of like energy distribution. If you are filling up your, yeah. you, you know, you're filling up your days trying to manage people. Um, and I like I don't know if Rose uh, Fast Bryce was the first to say this, but you lead people and you manage numbers, and so many people get that backwards. So you spend your days, you spend mm-hmm. all this energy managing air quotes people, which is like a massive energy tax. You know, so you think about doing the opposite. What if you spent your days liberating people? Then what happens is, is not only are they going to have more space to be create to increase the velocity of creativity and innovation, you are. You're gonna. You're going to. You know. I mean, correct. It, you're going to. If you're a, the leader of people and you've you're you view your job as liberating them. Um, what do, what do you get to create with that? What do you get to create with that space when you when you have a lot less drama and bullshit to deal with? I think the other thing that's part of this too is a right. a rampant fear of polarization. Um, what I mean by that is there's still a tendency, there's authoritarian uh, impulses within organizations to try to make everything the same, and so they view polarity mm-hmm. differences as threats. Yes. And um, again, this is why I'm a big believer in DEI initiatives. You know, DEI initiatives are the first 10% of what needs to be done, but they are at least embracing the idea that difference is good. Um, You know, and um, and so when when a particularly diversity of thought. When I talk about diversity, I talk about you know the the classic DEI stuff, but also neurodiversity. You know, 25 to 30% of your workforce is neurodiverse. You know, I have ADHD. Business is not really set yeah. up for me to operate. You know, like if I that's one of the reasons I don't work for a company um, is because they don't they don't harness that. They try to control it. Um, and so, anyway, looping around to this yeah. idea of polarity, though, is that 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 um, 
that I think again, I, and I, you know, I, I'm disparaging men to some extent, but you know, that's who's in charge a lot of the time. So it is what it is. Um, you know, that's what that's what I say. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the world's problems look look like they they came from people that look a lot like me. Um, so is is that they fear polarity, so they try to control it, and that's what these like forced, mm-hmm. um, like like for like com- compliance, um, but also like a conformity as a as a social pressure norm within companies. Um, and I think back to his name escapes me, but he was he was a, a high ranking guy at Verizon, and he I, I, he started wearing jeans to work, and. And I, and I asked him, how, what did you, you know, why you do it? You know, what'd you do? And he goes, I just thought, let's see what they say. And this is like, you know, he was like a high ranking guy. He wasn't part of the C-suite, <laughs> but he was high ranking. And he was, let's see what they say. And they didn't say anything. Right. So I kept doing yeah. it. And then I told my team to do it. And a, roughly about a year after he started wearing jeans to work, they, uh, uh, Verizon changed their work uh, dress code policy. Because it was one person going, this is fucking stupid. And let's yeah. see what happens. Oh, this is this goes to something that we always teach our clients, which is it's a concept that that I got from the U.S. Army called my 15 percent. And it's so powerful because it gets right to this. You know, when when the U.S. Army started deploying red teaming and created the red teaming university at Fort Leavenworth and all this stuff, U.S. Army loves to do psychological surveys and, and monitor the 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 psychology of officers and things like this. So when I was going through the, the course, you know, we had tons of psychology, psychological assessments and stuff, you know. Um, and when they were doing it with the first few cohorts that went through the, the red team leader course, they found an interesting thing. They found that people's enthusiasm for red teaming and through the course was going up, 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 up until right before they graduated. And then it started to plummet. And why did it start to plummet? It started to plummet because the officers were thinking like, oh, this has been great, but now I got to go back to my unit. And I know my general is a complete asshole who doesn't like to be questioned. And when I start trying to use these tools to surface alternative perspectives and to challenge our thinking in a constructive way, Mm -hmm. he is going to shoot me down so fast. And it really started to have an impact, negative impact on morale. So they, they... they wanted to address this because they didn't want people going through this amazing program and then going back to their units mm-hmm. all, all depressed, you know, about it. So they, they, they put a group of organizational psychologists to work on it. And they came up with this concept called My 15%. And it's based on, as I understand, at least as I was taught it, it's based on a, 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 a fact that's been surfaced by organizational psychologists that in any organization, doesn't matter if it's the military, a company, a university, you know, whatever it is, an NGO, no matter what your job is, there's always at least 15% of it that you have an ability to directly impact. And it doesn't matter whether you're on the C-suite or on the factory floor. It doesn't matter if you're if you're a scientist or a janitor cleaning up the lab. There's at least 15%. In some cases, it might be more, but there's at least 15% of what you do that you could change. And if you... And so the advice, the reason, what, what, the, what the Army started teaching was this little module called My 15% was that if you find yourself back in your unit and, and your general, your senior leader doesn't want to, to implement these tools and stuff that you just spent, spent the past several months learning, don't, don't just give up. 
focus on your 15%. Figure out what is the 15% of your job that you can have a positive impact on and try to change that. And if you do that, it may not happen overnight. It may not happen next year. But over time, you will start to change the direction of the organization. And what you just described, Justin, at Verizon, that is an example of someone taking their 15% or a piece of their 15% and making a change and then having it turn the whole organization. I love that. It reminds me of one of my favorite sayings from Margaret Mead where she says, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the yes. only thing that ever has. Yes, and I have hmm. this. And you just got to goes back to what you said earlier, though. It goes, you got to yes. have that and courage. And it's funny, as I have, you know, my 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 partner, my at home, Virginia, as a P, her PhD is in communication for social change, and she's a complexity science. And we have this running debate that will probably be a podcast. We're really honestly thinking about launching a podcast because I think our conversations are fascinating. Maybe nobody else will, but it's this idea uh, that. I said to her, and she's been a lifelong activist. She's the president of the largest uh, feminist organization in Central America, very group oriented. I said, groups don't change shit. People do, individuals do. I was highly offensive to the former Sandinista. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I bet. I expect nothing less. Some hubris in that, of course. You know, I'm being provocative. Is though at the end of the day, Um, individuals, to, like Margaret Mead's quote, uh, Marcus, is perfect for that, is, is this is, is that it's individuals making small changes that lead to big changes. And, and history is full of that. There's, there's been no, no point in history where a large group right. of people did anything yeah. except make things worse. Um, so, you know, and, and so <laughs> Absolutely. when, when you true. look at it this way, that's yeah. why I talk about a calling. Like, to create systemic change, whether that be massive systemic change, like societal issues, like climate change or something, or more micro systemic change, like you can wear jeans to work. That's a calling. And it's only going to be by based off of historical um, numbers, going to be maybe 10% of your leaders that are willing to do it. My favorite story, and I won't go to the whole thing, people can look it up on Wikipedia is Billy Mitchell is a great example. Uh, he was a uh, an army, an army officer. Oh, yeah, he was a pro absolutely. And the Navy, which ran the military at the time, this is in between World War I and World War II, was so uh, uh, offended by him that they had him court-martialed and he spent some time at Leavenworth. And, and he is now the only person yep. in the history wow. of the U.S. military to have a airplane named after him, the B-25 Mitchell bomber. Um, one man, being a heretic, changes everything. From Jesus to Buddha to Muhammad to Martin Luther King Jr. to Harvey Milk to yeah. whatever. You know, one person being a heretic changes everything. Um, it might get you killed. You might lose your job. But it does change things. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And it goes back to those two key phrases, the two key words in that statement from Margaret. Thoughtful yes. and committed. You know, these aren't irrational. These aren't reactive. These are well thought out intended behaviors committed to a purpose to a cause to a calling and you get those two things together Mm -hmm. and people start to follow it and we're seeing that with what we're trying to do with you know we see red team thinking as a calling as a movement as a you know a insurgency we want people to join it because they are feeling it that's the whole point once you get people feeling something 
it's so much easier right. to make it move with the momentum you need it to do. And you better be attracted if you're going to do this, if you're going to be the hero in the story, you better be attracted to subversion, subversiveness. Like if you're, if you're trying to be like khaki pants guy all the time, you know, like just blending in, you're, <laughs> you're, you're not going to do shit. You know, you're working within the system. Fine. Great. You know, your, 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 your team members like you, but there's no systemic change. Um, and is, is that you, yeah, it, you got to take risks. You got to take risks. And I think that's why to go back to the David Hawkins's map of conscience, you got to get to the courage line. Here's what's on the other side of the courage line. The first thing, if you look at that map, is reason, rational thought. That's what the that's what's there. That's the first thing. Is the logical brain gets engaged and goes, "Oh, this is stupid. Let's find a better way to do it." But it's leading towards a greater state of liberation or enlightenment or whatever you want to call it. There you go. So have the courage right. to be right. subversive in your organization. Where can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about what you're doing, if they want to learn more or follow your work? Yeah, thank you, Bryce. Thank you, Marcus. Um, uh, the easiest way, I'm pretty findable, is just find me on LinkedIn, Justin Foster. Just search for Justin Foster. And if you're on Instagram and you you want a level, higher level of provocation, just follow me at Foster Thinking on Instagram. Um, and I post a lot of stuff on there that's spiritual, philosophical, and sometimes it goes over to LinkedIn and it's about to be even more. I think I've avoided to some extent being somewhat vulnerable here, um, being more public on uh, LinkedIn about some of my views related to what is required of leadership. But um, like we said, you can't, you can't, you, you need a little bit of courage to be subversive. So um, you follow me on either one of those though. Excellent. Check it out, folks. Great conversation. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode. There, you'll also find a link to our free assessment. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.